What's up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org, and I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Today's episode is Bonhoeffer Project's last track session at the most recent forum. It's titled X Marks a Spot, X as in multiplication. In the garden, man was called to be fruitful and to multiply. From the beginning of the church, she has grown by multiplication. And that happens in the context of community as we disciple others toward becoming more like Christ in all areas of their lives. It's my favorite part about discipleship. Ann Spangler says, to emphasize salvation and neglect discipleship is to miss the entire point of why Jesus came to earth and lived as a rabbi. We're called to be disciples who make disciples that, you guessed it, make other disciples. So let's multiply. Let's let Cindy Perkins, Hollis Half, and Leo Wisniewski encourage us today in this episode. Enjoy it, guys. All righty. Welcome back. Last session. You have made it. And uh, here we are. So we have talked about, if you've been with us, which most of you have, uh, you've seen us talk about the gospel we preach. We've talked about the language we use. And the definitions of the words disciple and discipline and how those all fit together. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about the implementation process. So the whole point of discipleship is multiplication, right? If we're just having addition, uh, our churches grow very slowly and the kingdom isn't, that's not what God intended for the kingdom. So we want to talk about a bit about multiplication, um, Basically, if implementation doesn't happen and your disciples aren't making other disciples, the whole process stops. So we've been watching this happen for 2,000 years, and we're just going to keep doing it. But I, I have invited Hollis Half and Leo Wisniewski up to um, uh, talk with me this time. What I would like these guys to do, because both of them have implemented in different contexts, so I'm going to ask them as they talk about that to introduce yourself. Tell us what your context was after you went through the project and, and implemented in those places. And then, Hollis, would you start first? Introduce yourself. My name is Hollis Half. HAFF, just like a half dollar. And uh, I am a regional representative on the Bonhoeffer Project. My third year, I was an Athletes in Action staff member for about 18 years. I was a church planner for 34 years. And four years ago at this conference in Nashville, uh, I walked in and heard Bill Hall speak. And it took a lot of the questions that I had about discipleship and why it was just so difficult and why it was so ineffective and uh, he gave perspective and insight to it that just, uh, you know, was so helpful. Uh, Leo and I went together to the conference, and we've known each other, been buddies for a long time since he was a college student. And um, so we got back, we read a bunch of the books um, and processed them together. And then we got in a cohort. And after the cohort, uh, I joined staff. That was, that was, the, that was the background of... Uh, you know, how we got into uh, Bonhoeffer. And, uh, so, so tell us about a little bit about how you implemented discipleship into your church setting. Oh, well, when Leo and I went through the cohort, we were uh, on a, in a hybrid because of COVID. So we didn't even meet the rest of the guy, or some of the guys were local, but we didn't meet the rest of the people in our cohort till we had a retreat at the end, or only have it at the beginning. And... Um, uh, 
so that was when everybody was decentralized, and then they started to kind of come back together. So our uh, the ministry plan, discipleship plan that I had put together in my cohort became our church's plan. Um, I was the founding senior pastor and I'd step back from being senior pastor because I got so frustrated with things. I said, I want to spend this last season, when I was 63, I said, I'm going to spend the last season of my life doing what I got in the ministry to do, which was discipling people. But I got to figure out how to do this right. So, you know, we, we implemented a plan which started, I mean, it was very intricate. I couldn't go through the whole thing, but I'll give you the highlights of it. We started with an integrated series. And by integrated series, I mean you integrate what you're doing at the church service and the preaching. We went through Mark, chapter at a time called Rediscovering Discipleship. You go through the book of Mark, asking the question, you know, looking through the lens, going through Mark's gospel, looking at, through the lens of discipleship. And so you're always asking the question, what does chapter one teach us about discipleship? Next week, what does chapter two teach us about discipleship and so forth? What we're talking about in the main service is being um, reinforced in your small groups because their small groups are processing those things together using the discovery Bible method. And then because we were still coming out of COVID and people were hooked on this video stuff, we were actually going through uh, two of our main books, uh, discipleship gospel and how to live in love like Jesus. And we had four teaching pastors. So we would take turns and we would do little five to seven minute devotionals in which um, we would go through those books. So in 16 weeks, eight in the fall, and then we took a break after Christmas, it came back and went right up to Easter. Um, that, that, if you think of it as a triangle, the repetition and reinforcement from preaching to small groups to personal devotions is one of the most effective in internalizing truth. So it took us, and we'd been talking about discipleship for years, but it, you know, it took the insights from Bonhoeffer, which I think are critical, and it took us to a new level, and then it set the stage for us to keep going. And I had a conversation with the, with, um, the co-author, uh, of uh, Kingdom Discipleship. What's his name? Dan? Dan, Dan, Dan? The pastor in... Uh, oh, Ben Sobels. Ben Sobels, yeah. Um, I called up the co-author of one of Bill's books and asked him, I said, what advice would you give if we go through this Mark series? He said, when I went through it, he said, I, he said, I got done, we started all these groups, and then everything fell, because we didn't know the next thing to do. We didn't, the plan didn't extend more than about, you know, about, about six months out. So we got Bill Hall and decided we're going to have a, a come and see conference. And so we scheduled him, uh, you know, in an effective time that is, you know, just as you started to lose a little bit of energy, boom, he comes back in and gave us a new shot of energy uh, with a come and see. We had a hundred people that came live right on the coattails of COVID and another 400 that watched on, um, Soon. live stream. And, you know, we, we tapped into all our ministry partners. We had people watching in different countries and stuff like that. So it added to the excitement. Felt like you're, okay, we're, you know, we're taking the stuff we've learned and we're getting this out to our connections and leveraging all of our ministry partnerships. So, um, so that's what we did in our context in our church. And now we're continuing, um, I mentor the guy who's now the pastor of discipleship uh, on a regular basis. I have a group, I have a couple groups of guys in our church that I'm uh, discipling. Um, we have um, 
a leadership community that we keep putting discipleship concepts into when they get together. Um, we've, we've got a, we developed over time a number of different vehicles to get discipleship material, uh, you know, that we can constantly just build it into the culture where it's not a, a unique program. It's just, this is who we are. This is what we do. Very cool. So, so you can hear by what Hollis says that that is, um, that is his holistic process, right? It can't just be effectively one little piece. You can start that way. But if you want your whole church to be discipled, you have to engage your whole church and all the things that you do in your church need to focus toward what you're doing. So, Leo, tell us a little bit about you. That's your recording, so you need okay. to... Okay. Yeah. Um, very good. Yeah. Um, well, Hollis kind of um, shared the way that the Discipleship Forum uh, in Nashville four years ago really impacted us. And it was um, really the Bonhoeffer staff, um, Bill Hall, uh, Denny Heiberg as well. Denny had, uh, I think, a big impact teaching a few of those sessions. And Denny became our uh, cohort leader as well. Um, but uh, for me, I, I mean, I... I'd uh, gone to seminary, got a degree in biblical studies. I had some rich disciples like Hollis uh, in my life following Christ for, um, you know, almost 40 years uh, to that point. And um, but I recognized that that I had really kind of separated um biblical teaching on justification by faith alone and separated sanctification. And um, I, I immediately recalled how one of my good friends, a brother in Christ, he would say, Leo, you're very Pauline in your <laughs> preaching and teaching. And I'd say, really? You think I emphasize Paul all the time? He goes, yeah, all the time. He, he said, me, I'm a gospel man. I'm a gospel man. <laughs> and, and it was like a light bulb went off that, that I was very affected by um, evangelists and um, I think modeled many of my messages in evangelistic settings around um, this um, receive and believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. Um, uh, Sandy used... Um, John 1, 12, um, uh, you know, which says Jesus uh, came to a world that he had made, and yet it did not recognize him. He came uh, to uh, his own people, and they did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed on his name. And... Um, and so this, you know, idea of um, uh, asking Jesus to come into your life, receiving him was the basis um, to give the people biblical assurance that, that if they were not previously assured of their salvation, they could say the sinner's prayer and they could seal the deal. And um, I recognized um, through the Bonhoeffer project that 
that um, that gospel was a weak and even false gospel in many ways. Um, and uh, the very first book I read coming out of that was um, the Discipleship Gospel by Bill Hall and Ben Sobel's. And, and that really had a huge impact on me, uh, getting back to, to Christ's teaching on the gospel, that there, there was a, a very knowable and coherent gospel that Jesus presented um, over and over. And it was based on four declarative statements and three imperative commands. And the four declarative statements represent the content of the gospel, uh, namely that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus made present the kingdom of God and ushered it in through his sinless life, his death as an atoning sacrifice for sin, his glorious resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation to the Father. He ushered in the kingdom of God. He made it present. Um, and then the second is that Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the king. Um, Christ died uh, for uh, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the scriptures. And Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is the essential content of the scripture. Um, but I had recognized, you know, who, when was the last time I heard a message about the kingdom of God? When was the last time I heard a message about the kingship of Jesus? Um, Hollis was clearly actually the last time on either of those that I had heard any, any teaching. Um, but the, you have the content of the gospel and then the call of the gospel. And in the call of the gospel, Jesus makes three imperative commands. He says, repent from your sins, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus. Right, And we're uh, only able to follow Jesus in spirit-led obedience. So um, I took that. That was the very first piece kind of that I took to my 10 ministry leaders with locking arms. And um, I gave, I didn't push the book. Guys who were very interested and wanted the book, I gave it to them because I felt better going to the scriptures. I didn't want them to think, oh, this is kind of the latest new word from some guru that I got all excited about. Um, I wanted them to know that, that, that this was Jesus' teaching on the gospel. And our guys began to really embrace it, and they began teaching it in their groups. Uh, and then I began to bring in, as I was going through that first cohort with Hollis, some of the other teaching, um, like the three discipleship questions from Brandon Cook, um, the four-chair discipleship process. And these were things that we really began to integrate uh, into our discipleship groups. And, and the the traction, we were gaining some really strong traction from them. Subsequently, we had uh, about 10 of our leaders go through a cohort. And um, it's been exciting to see many of them pretty aggressively implementing their discipleship plans. 
So tell them a little bit about Locking Arms Men. They might not be familiar with what you do with that. We're a, a non-denominational men's ministry in the greater Pittsburgh region. Uh, the sort of centerpiece of our ministry is um, our uh, discipleship groups and um, connecting with men from all backgrounds and um, uh, really helping them to... Um, to build a strong foundation in scripture, um, learning uh, how to pray and um, and really that that threefold triangle of knowing scripture, obeying scripture, and passing mm -hmm. it on. Though we don't uh, teach it, you know, necessarily in that way. That's that's really what our groups are all about. Um, and then we do monthly events to continue bringing a stream of new men in to the ministry. We do two retreats a year, which have become very strong um, uh, places to do uh, our Bonhoeffer teaching. Yeah, and, tell me, give me an example of uh, the guys that did the talked on the triads who had come. Yeah, yeah, we. Um, have had our grads, our Bonhoeffer grads, do a good bit of teaching. And um, at our last retreat, um, we had a couple of our guys uh, teach on the power of microgroups, uh, the triad or quad size group, and um, uh, how effective they are in training up new leaders as well as um, – uh, reflecting the kind of transparency that that really moves men toward transformation and um, the scripture-based kind of foundation of those groups. Um, as, and guys, um, we've, we've had guys teach on the three discipleship questions and the four-chair process. Um, those would typically be things that I would do with our large groups, but with the the equipping that many of our leaders have gotten, I feel very confident and turn that loose to them. So Leo has referenced a couple of times the three discipleship questions that Brandon Cook in his book, Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus, um, references. And those three questions are, how am I doing loving the people God has given me to love. Not how am I doing, but how am I doing loving people? Uh, God, how can you be so good? Right? Because we have to wonder how, how can God be so good? And then Jesus, what are we up to today? What, what are you and I going to do today? Indicating that we are um, dependent upon him in that place. So those are some of the things that we walk through uh, in the Bonhoeffer Project. So you can see that implementation looked very different in the church and in a parachurch organization. Um, and so your context, the discipleship implementation is going to look different. But I want to ask you guys, um, what, what roadblocks did you hit? What difficulties did you hit in the process as you were going through this? Um, I, would, I would say the one that you should all anticipate is that, that people think they've heard the gospel all their lives. And so it comes as a jolt to them to start to challenge that, to, to, 
to suggest that maybe they've gotten the gospel wrong. Um, we had a staff meeting, <laughs> and one of the young secretaries, she said, you're telling me that I've been, that I've had the gospel wrong for 25 years? <laughs> and, you know, she said, well, she says, well, what, what, are you, what am I going to do if, you know, 10 years down the road, you tell me the gospel something else? <laughs> but it was that, you know, someone just struggling internally with this idea, how could I be so wrong for so long? And so I think you'll, you know, you'll run into that. Um, you'll, you'll run into the, the, the normal passivity. But the th one of the things I love about the Bonhoeffer Project is that's the exact thing it, it attacks. If, if, you, if the gospel is not, you know, pray this prayer with me, but come follow me. See, follow me is not passive. <laughs> follow me is active. You, you have to, it, it causes you to do something. And so all of a sudden people are, are beginning to struggle with, maybe I'm not a Christian. And I would say maybe that's the most important one. Yeah. That people will start to actually question their own salvation. And that's a great opportunity. Um, and I never try to make that judgment for people. To say, well, just, I, in fact, you know, I used to do the, here's a pen. Now, if you ask Jesus in your life, where is it? He's in here. Now, if you ever doubt that, you're calling Jesus a liar. <laughs> you know, I got away from that one. And I started saying, look, just follow Jesus. Do this. This week, write down how many times you follow Jesus. Let's talk about it. Now, it's amazing. As people begin to do that, they get assurance. They start to go, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really big one and, and a, a roadblock that sometimes you will hit as you begin to implement discipleship because people, um, people don't want to change. Sandy talked about that earlier today. People have a hard time with change. And you have to implement those changes slow. Again, we go back to this is the long game. We're, we are in this long term. This will not be an overnight. Everybody wants the silver bullet. There is no silver bullet to discipleship. You may find a six-week curriculum that's a good curriculum, but then what happens at the end of the six weeks? Where, where do you take them from there? So if you're curriculum dependent, you will be curriculum dependent for the rest of your time. And so taking them back to scripture, helping them understand and learn the relationship that they need to have with Christ and with one another. That's the place where you begin to see that transformation because that's the place that opens your heart and life to the Holy Spirit, which is where the transformation comes from. Yeah. Leo, how about you? What, what struggles or roadblocks did you have? Um, well, one was with my leadership group. I, I think um, similar to what Hollis reflected is um, people, evangelicals, and you know, know their way around the Bible, uh, you know, tend to have pretty strong feelings that they know the gospel. And so you're uh, confronting, you know, that from a, a, a biblical place. Um, and hopefully a place of humility, not in an adversarial way, not in a, you know, I'm the boss, this is the way it's going to go way. Um, but also, um, and Hollis gave an example of this, but maybe not necessarily our leaders, but reflecting on loved ones that 
I, you know, I don't think, you know, my brother, you know, knows the Lord. I, you know, I don't think based on what I'm learning about the gospel that, you know, my daughter could really know the Lord. Yes, you know, she's attended church. Yes, she's gone forward, you know, but I have to say I, I don't see any real fruit in her life. I, I don't see her any continued movement following Jesus. So so that's heavy. Those those conversations are heavy conversations. And, um, you know, there's there's something in you that wants to affirm, you know, that that uh, to take away that pain. But you, you can't take away that pain. All you can do is pray into, you know, uh, that need and uh, that that Jesus would make himself uh, real to them. And um, so, yeah, those couple of things. Yeah. And I think one of the things as I as I think about that, because I had some of the same things as I was implementing in the context where I was, I had leaders who uh, didn't want to believe that the people that they were leading might not know Christ because they weren't following Christ and there was no fruit. There's no visible fruit. And if there's no visible fruit, then we've done something wrong in our discipleship or somewhere along the way there's a, there's a disconnect. And so I think a couple of things. It's easy for us to get discouraged in that process. Um, number one, you need to have somebody alongside you that's going to encourage you. These two guys are good friends, so they've encouraged one another. If you don't have that person in your church, look outside your church and find somebody who can can walk along and encourage you as you walk through the process. But the other thing that I think we really have to remember and keep our eyes on is the fact that it is not my responsibility for the outcome. The outcome belongs to the Holy Spirit. It does not belong to me. My responsibility is to set the table, to put the, the feast out for them, to give them everything I've got, but they have a choice of God or not God. That's the choice that we all make in all all areas of life. And so I think that was for me one of the hardest things to reconcile is that I'm a fixer by nature, so I want to fix it. I want everybody to be okay. I want everybody to be happy and good in their place. And then they turn and walk away and it's like, wait a minute, what did I do wrong? And maybe I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe I did everything right, and the Holy Spirit is working with them, and they are running because they don't want to, to do that. The other thing that we have to remember is that Scripture tells us that the, this road is narrow, and there will be a remnant. And we, we all have this heartbeat that we want to see the whole world disciple, right? We want to see everybody on earth know Jesus, but the reality is they don't. Few will be few will be in that narrow gate, and so just coming to terms with that, with the fact that you might have some folks who turn and walk away. Jesus did, right? I, I remember the scripture where he was uh, talking to them, giving them some hard teaching, and a bunch of them walked off. And he looked at his twelve and said, "Y'all are going to leave too? You going to? Right?" And and so they didn't. But then he lost one, right? Jesus lost one with Judas. And so uh, we can't expect that 
100% of the people that we engage in discipleship are going to be walking through that process. So I think that's the reality that we have to live with. That's the piece that humbles us and keeps us on our knees, right? Because we have a heartbeat for that. Let me repeat the question for yeah. the recording. So the question, uh, if I'm understanding it, is how do you encourage the full body so that you can engage everybody in the body? Is that part of the process? How do you make that part of the process? Yeah. Is that a good synopsis of the question? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, we do it, in other words, we look at it as a, how do we change the culture of our church? And you do it, there's a number of different ways you can do it. I mean, it's a multi-pronged aspect, but a couple of the features that stand out would be, number one, you have to constantly cast vision for what you're doing. We're, we're about making disciples who are going to make other disciples around here. So if you just come to a conference and hear that, and you go away or you read a book and you put it on your shelf, you know, you know, vision has, you know, vision, there's an old saying, vision leaks. You know, if you don't repeat it every 30 days, people are going to forget it. So we just make sure that we are constantly reinforcing that vision about this is who we are. You know, if you come to New Community Church, we're, we're about making disciples. You, you have to also make sure that you're, and this goes to one of the seminars that was done earlier on language. Uh, when you're creating culture, you have to use the same language. And so one of the things that I think we've gotten much better at because we've become intentional is using similar language so that people you know, when you get viral language, language that sticks in the culture, you know, and people just pick up on it. I be, For instance, when I came to this conference uh, the first time, I, I began to pick up on the phrase, you know, we got to move away from uh, information-based discipleship to uh, obedience-based discipleship. And that that's a viral, that's easy to remember. It sticks with you. So when I went back, I found myself saying that, you know, to people. And it's, it began to, I began to notice, number one, people would pause <laughs> because they were processing or going, oh, I guess you're really serious about this. <laughs> and and uh, so you could, you could tell it was just, it was impacting. The language was beginning to impact. And then, then they'd hear the other pastors say it. And then they'd hear, you know, their small group leaders say it because I'm teaching them, you know, this is how we're going to talk. And we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we're all going to be pulling from the same you know, in the same direction and the same, <laughs> with the same language. And so all of a sudden it becomes like, you know, overwhelming. <clears throat> They're hearing it everywhere. And it forces them to think about, am I just collecting information here or am I following Jesus? So, you know, keep, you keep pushing them back to that central line. So those, those would be a couple examples of what I would say of how you begin to, you know, shape the culture uh, in, in a congregational setting as opposed to just one-on-one? -on -one. That's a good question. Yes, great question. What other questions might you have? I know this is a pretty intense topic, um, thinking about uh, what about the ones who don't get to go? I, I would just, on uh, that question, just one quick thing that Hollis maybe didn't address is what about the people who aren't getting so excited? Um, and so we... I only deal with the excited people. I don't... <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we, some of our guys, um, you know, love the brotherhood dimension of our ministry uh, that we love and accept guys no matter where they come from, no matter where they are in their journey. 
And, you know, they might not be all that on fire <laughs> to be transformed. <laughs> um, but but we love them. Um, we we try to continue to affirm um, that that um, that Christ loves you wherever you are, but but He loves you so much He's not going to mm. let you stay there, and yeah. and so um, we hope that that kind of holy agitation, um, you know, brings those guys along like like a strong current of. Uh, of passion for Christ and making disciples, but yeah. but we 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 tell our leaders you you got to be sensitive to those guys and um, and if there's dissent that they want to share you got to you got to welcome that um, and uh, just try and overcome it with with uh, where we're going and how our strategy matches up yeah you make it a safe place for them to to question yeah right so that's important is that we make it a safe place for people to to question and and wrestle with because they're going to have to wrestle with where they are with jesus if they if they have a question about whether or not they're right with god they're going to have to have that space to wrestle and so we we have the relationship we make that a safe space for them to do that if you had a question it's not really a question we have a small it's a fairly small church and we've started i'm a prayer warrior we've started a prayer ministry and we are always we pray for the sick but we don't make that our central theme in our prayer we pray for the holy spirit we pray for transformation we pray that we be disciple makers and we just keep doing that over and over and we just make that the focus instead of you know a lot of you know the list of sick people you know, and, and health is important. This is much more important. So we got to take our prayer ministry too and focus on this. Yeah, be, being able to align every every ministry in the church around your your mission statement. Our mission statement is uh, we exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus, who know Him, who grow up in Him, and who who go out for Him. And so we ask every ministry to say, how is what you're doing? Aligning with this. Yeah, part of that is accountability. Accountability in your ministry areas uh, to make sure that the folks who are um, engaging with you in this place are looking in all of those areas and, and starting here, right? Because again, we can't take people where we have not been. So starting with me, how am I doing in that relationship with Christ. And now am I pushing that relationship out to somebody else to help them figure out how they're doing, yeah. uh, loving the people that God has given them to love. Because yeah. that's, that's the reality of it. If it were just about our salvation, at the moment of salvation, he would have taken us up and we'd have been done. Yeah. Yeah. But we have work to do, right? So he's left us here to do the work of the ministry. And our job as leaders is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And part of that is leading by example in discipling relationships ourselves. Don't ever ask your people to do something you're not willing to do. <laughs> Cindy, let me, let me say, give one thing that's been very helpful to me. And that is, uh, you know, just a good leadership principle is define reality. This is what leaders do. Leaders define reality. They stop entropy and they say thank you. Now, think about the first one, though. Define reality. 
I think part of the problem that we face in all of our churches is we haven't defined reality so that people have a holy discontent with the status quo. It's too easy to get settled into churches, normals, what's, you know, this, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we got a lot of people coming to church and, you know, we have really good Bible teaching and stuff like that. And so when you start defining reality, um, I, I'll I just give you my own example because I grew up in Ohio, right next door here, very similar to Indiana. And it, and it was in the 60s. It was a time when, um, you know, just about everybody I knew went to church, but hardly anybody talked about Jesus. Did you ever notice that? It was like weird if you talked about Jesus. I had a guy, you know, started talking. The, the, the one guy who would talk about Jesus was the captain of our football team. He was um, top student, president, student body, and he was dating my wife. So, Who wasn't your wife at the yeah, just say he wasn't my wife. Yeah. Uh, yes. But, but, you know, he said, Hollis, how, how's your relationship with God? And I, I couldn't, I, I'm going, oh, Lord, not, you know, not this. I said, and I, I didn't even look at him. I just said, fine, <laughs> you know. But God began just bringing more. Well, he just loved me so much that he, he got me into this camp where I heard all these other kids, and that's since I was 16 years old. I, I, I came to Christ as best I knew, because what they told me I needed to do was ask Jesus into my heart, and I'd go to heaven. And I, was, I, and I knew I was in trouble. I needed, I needed that. Now, when I look back on it, now here, here was the problem. I, I, I say I was born into a weak strain of Christianity. That might have been Christianity, but it was a real weak strain of it. Because my understanding level was really like that. And so what happened was I fell into this syndrome of constantly asking Jesus into my heart again. Why? You know, I mean, kept, kept thinking, well, I, I'm just screwing up all the time. I'm sure he's throwing me out, you know, and I got, I got to start, start over again. So I kept making the, you know, the starting point, the finish line. And uh, when I got in college, you know, God brought some other people into my life and they changed the trajectory of my life where, whew, you know, I was starting to grow, and, 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 and I realized what it was. I was hearing the Bible taught. I was in a group of people. It was almost like the guy was talking about AA. Was it Sandy talking about AA? I was thinking, oh, my gosh, that's what a great illustration. You, know, you, you get in a group. You know, you get the big book. You, get, you know, you say, I got a problem. I'm Hollis, and I got a problem, and all of us do. You know, but I just... Uh, you know, I look back on that and I realize that was a problem. I'm not sure exactly when I became a Christian, but I know as I started responding now at this new level, C.S. Lewis has a great line. I'll just tie it together with this. C.S. Lewis says, we're, he's a lot of our churchgoers are like people who are uh, making mud pies in the slums when they could be making sandcastles at the beach. In other words, we haven't defined reality. They don't realize that they're playing at Christian. <laughs> they're, they're dabbling around the edges of Christianity, but it's a weak stream of Christianity, and there's probably no assurance of it with it. There's no joy. There's no adventure. There's no, none of that stuff. So as a leader, one of the things I'm constantly trying to do is to, is to create a holy discontent in their lives that says, this is intolerable. People don't just go, I talked about vision before, but people don't respond just to vision. They respond to realizing I don't like where I'm at. So I want them to think, hey, there's, you know, there's sandcastles we could be making if we actually got serious about this. And if you're not serious about it, 
I got a bad message for you. You're probably not following Jesus. Well, and we have to personalize that, right? Each person needs to understand it's their responsibility and their privilege. I think that's the other piece is we might not call it a privilege as often as we should uh, so, that, so that we help people understand that it is a privilege to stand in the presence of a holy God. It is an awesome privilege because he's a holy God and I um, may or may not be always, right? So, so helping people understand the reality of where they are, that's a, that's a really important piece that we need to, to take a good look at and communicate to our people. But the, statistically, people have to hear something seven times before it ever comes mm-hmm. in their brain the first time. And so when we're casting vision, to, to build on what Hollis says, when we're casting vision, you're going to say it ad nauseum. You're going to say it till you're so sick of hearing it, and then they're just starting to get it. And you're ready to move on to the next thing. But they need to keep hearing it and keep hearing it and keep hearing it. Other questions? Um, also, when you started implementing your discipleship plan, was your context already a context where there was, you started working with your group to kind of put it into the church, were there already disciple makers within the church? Or was it not so much disciple makers and you had to you know, do that? And who did particularly were you bringing into that plan to help, or not maybe formalizing it, but help once you brought the plan together, who did you bring in from your church to help you start bringing that in, you know, to spread through the rest of the church? Were they key people? Were they... Yeah. I, so repeat the question. Yeah, the, the question is, what individuals or groups did you start with to try to bring this message into the life of the church? You know, ours is, our situation is, I, I, I grew up in Athletes in Action, Campus Crusade for Christ, crew. So this discipleship message was pretty well set in me the problem was what I was experiencing was not matching the books and the charts that I was seeing of how this should be multiplying. So from our early, from in our earliest years, like year two, we started uh, using Greg Ogden's book, Discipleship Essentials. And I got every one of the staff to get two people um, and disciple them with the idea that they would disciple others. We had 150 people that went through that, but it hardly ever went to another generation. So those were the kinds of early frustrations that bugged me, you know. And but we so we were always doing um, discipleship stuff. It's just that we were doing it ineffectively. And so and, and all our staff were bought in, you know. I mean, if you just said, I mean, I'm being invited out to speak at, on discipleship themes at other churches and camps and men's groups and so forth. I, my role was as a chaplain with the Steelers for years, and so people knew me as the guy that discipled Steelers. That's how I got to know Leo. He was a captain of Penn State's football team, and he played four years in the NFL. And if you watch the draft tonight, he was the number one draft choice of the Baltimore Colts. How about that? (laughs) Actually, I was the first pick of the second round. First pick of the second round, yeah. 28th overall. That's close enough for me. I'm pushing you into the first round. Still pretty spectacular. It is. It is. So... You know, now fast forward, uh, you know, we'd been doing stuff. I went through, uh, uh, James Byron Smith has a series called The Apprentice Series. And I, I taught all that stuff. And, you know, so we went through seasons of discipleship intensity. We did those integrated series with other, we did it back with the Purpose Driven 
church. And so, so that stuff was always in there. The problem was that, that we were missing the framework of why were so many people still passive and, you know, so forth. So after my Bonhoeffer experience, I went back and immediately shared it with the staff. So we started having staff meetings around it. Um, so that was the first group, your staff. And that's where the secretary said, <laughs> you're telling me I got this wrong all my life? You know? And uh, then the next group was our leadership community, which is all our small group le leaders and serving team leaders. And I began, you know, seeding it into those uh, deals. We would have, you know, meetings, three big meetings during the year. And then I, would, I started putting out monthly uh, video teachings on discipleship that they were watching. So, you know, it went from the staff to the leadership community to then that's, so we had, we had that kind of leading up to the, the uh, rediscovering discipleship for the whole congregation. But I already had people doing stuff. And I would say uh, two of the four staff, well, all, all of them, all of them were in small groups and all of them would have said they were discipling. Two of us were doing it at a more passionate, intentional level, um, you know. So, you know, I'm wondering, um, in order to to offer empathy or compassion to members of the church who are not disciples, is it is it relevant to perhaps? place responsibility for the condition of the lack of discipleship in the church on leaders gone by? Is, it, is, it, is that a legitimate? Oh, I'd love to blame it on them. <laughs> as, a, as a point of, I mean, I mean, we all have blind spots. <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm just saying that I, I think that when you have people, and I've you've talked about it, and I've yeah. been challenged by it. You, do you, in other words, you're trying to say I'm not saved. I've had that. It. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, to, to sort of process and yeah. nurture so that you don't do more damage. Yeah. I, I think. Um, is it necessary? Is it helpful about Paul's assets to offer explanation for how the church has gotten in this? Yes. Place? Yes. Yes. And, and, and I was being facetious. I the the most I think the most effective thing I did was to say, hey, I've been complicit in this. I went back and looked at my messages, and um, I mean, I had a set of discipleship messages. I had a set of, you know, kind of come to Christ, come to Jesus messages, and they always went to the core message of Christ died for you. And my favorite messages of substitutionary atonement. And so I said, you know, I realize what what had happened that I'd fallen into that very thing that I was exposed to through the Bonhoeffer project of, of kind of redefining the, 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 uh, a dumbed down gospel on the redemptive core. And, and so if I'm teaching it from the pulpit, well, guess what? Everybody's understanding, you know, and I've had more people, uh, and I'm talking about pastors now, because now I've, I've got pastors, Christian leaders, and actually one of, uh, one of, uh, Leo's, uh, uh, guy on, on his board and an elder in his church, I still remember he said, 
He said, well, if you didn't get this till you were 69, and he said, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you admitted that, you know. <laughs> so, so I think we all have to just kind of own it and say, hey, you know, I've contributed to this problem. I mean, I was on Campus Crusade for Christ staff. I was doing this all the time. We were, go we were going into high schools with, with um, Steelers, pro you know, Pittsburgh Steelers, and doing a high school assembly in a superstar assembly in which they compete in different events. And I'd interview them, and then at the end, I'd give a quick gospel plan. You know, hey, if this made sense, God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Uh, you know, he died for you. He loved you that much. If you ask him to come into your life, he'll come in. Now, everything I said there is true. It's just not all the truth. <laughs> and if you make part of the truth all the truth, it becomes an untruth. So, you know, how many kids did I, you know, maybe caused to make those decisions. We had a really funny story where we're going back and, you know, we always had the cards that people would check. You know, I made the decision. And, and uh, I asked uh, Tunch Ilkin, who was uh, you know, another great friend of both of ours. And uh, he just passed uh, a year, year, year and a half, two years ago. And I said, Tunch, how many, how many decisions were there? <laughs> and he said, uh, we had uh, 600 decisions and six were saved. <laughs> And everybody, and every, everybody, all the all the guys, all the pro athletes in the in this band laughed, and I realized it was because we all knew intuitively that they were not becoming Christians. They were responding to this was really cool. I really liked this assembly, and then I read a book called by uh, it's called the Engle Scale by Jim Engle. He's a marketing professor at Ohio State, and he if you've ever seen it, he, I, I use a modified one, but he draws a cross and then he has positive one to positive ten, which is the growth on the right on this side, negative one to negative ten on this side, and and he said, you know, our problem as evangelicals is we put so much focus on the the cross and the point the point of conversion, we minimize this process out you know out to it. And, and he said, what we should do is be more concerned with progress towards the, that point. And as athletes, these guys had a chance to get into schools. Nobody else can do that. Who, who can go into a school and do this? Now, this is 40, 50, 40 years ago, but you, know, you, can't, you can't even do that now. But we'd go in and get away with it because they were pro athletes. And I think what was happening, he said the goal should be to, to um, arouse interest, uh, create a, a awareness of basic facts of the gospel, create movement towards the gospel. That was happening. So we were successful in a form of the, you know front-end evangelism that was creating interest, curiosity, moving people towards the cross. But you're kidding yourself if you think that all the people that put checks were, were becoming Christians. To be able to clarify that with people, when I teach this stuff, you know, you can see the lights go on all over the place. Everybody's shaking their head like, I get it. Yep, that's exactly the, what's going on in our evangelical community and still is. We want to say thank you for you guys coming and sitting with us. Thank you to Hollis and Leo. Thank you. Well, that wraps up the Bonhoeffer Projects episodes with us for this time. Next up, we've got episodes from Awana. They're going to be talking about habits for home discipleship and also ways to help us get our kids engaged in interactive Bible teaching. 
I hope that you enjoyed those episodes, everybody. And I hope that you'll hit the subscribe button so that you can come back and listen to more episodes. All right, y'all. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you so much for being a listener of the Disciple Makers podcast. We'll see you.